morning, brothers and sisters. I'm happy to be with you today, which is actually the second Sunday of Epiphany. Most Protestants are not that familiar with this season. Uh, their Christmas season ends with December 25, but many historic Christian churches continue the celebration of Christmas on through this season that we call Epiphany. Epiphany literally means the appearance, because Epiphany celebrates the appearance of God via His Son to humanity, and two special appearances, particularly after Christ's birth, are celebrated in Epiphany. The visit of the wise men, or magi, to Jesus in Bethlehem, and Jesus' baptism, both represent, in a way, two initial public appearings of Jesus, one might say. Today I want to focus on the second of these appearances, Jesus' baptism, and the lessons that God has for us in this event. The episode of Jesus' baptism is probably very familiar to us, perhaps even too familiar. We find that sometimes that when we already have set expectations about how to see or read something, that we may miss other details that might be there or other parts of the message of God's Word. And so today I want to try to listen very carefully to this story and think about it in some ways that might be fresh for you. This reminds me of when I handed out an article to my biblical literature class a few years ago on the archaeology of Jerusalem by Elliot Mazar. When students' comments came back to me, a couple of them were kind of miffed that the article had this sort of superfluous, useless picture of some random woman sitting in the digs. And most of the students referred to the author of the article as he. In fact, Elliot Mazar is a she. This woman is Elliot Mazar sitting at the site of her famous dig where she believes that she's discovered King David's palace. The point is, of course, that the students expected that archaeologist equals man, and this woman couldn't be the archaeologist, not realizing, of course, that Elliot is a woman's name in Hebrew. Perhaps they expected the archaeologist to wear an Indiana Jones hat as well. I don't know. But the point, of course, is that our expectations can cause us to read things through a lens that prevents us from seeing all that's there. So let's go back to this text, a text that starts with the message of John the Baptist, a prophet being sent into Israel's wilderness. We're told that he goes into the Judean countryside, that, all, that many, many people from Jerusalem and all around Judea are going out to him and being baptized. And we read that he is proclaiming a prophetic message to Israel, a message of repentance. To really understand the import of this for Mark's first readers, to put ourselves in their places, we have to understand that all Jesus' first disciples were Jewish. Jesus first spoke to the Jewish people. And at the time of Jesus, Israel had been waiting for God to act for centuries, literally. For five of the past six centuries before Christ, Israel had been ruled over by foreign powers. Israelites had been carried away captive. They had been treated as prisoners of war and as foreign subjects in their own land under conquerors. They longed for the day when God's glory would return to Israel, when God would make things right once again, when God would raise up a Messiah, a king out of the line of David, who would set Israel free, who would help purify God's people's hearts, and who would rule over the nations. And so the first thing we learn 
about Epiphany when we see that the scripture says that indeed God did send a prophet as he promised, a prophet to announce the coming of Messiah, that God is faithful to his promises and God is faithful to his people. He does not abandon his people. God kept his promises, although perhaps not in exactly the way that Israel was expecting or even that we may expect always. Look at this scene here. Here we have John the Baptist, this lone prophet, out literally in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness. No shopping malls, no cities, no roads, no state parks, nothing. It's completely unsettled, uncivilized. And he's at the Jordan River, dunking people in it. What's he doing? And he claims to be calling the whole nation of Israel to repentance, to get ready for Messiah. Why is John in the middle of nowhere? Why isn't John setting up in Jerusalem, the spiritual capital of Judea, or perhaps one of the other large cities of Judea, like Jericho or Caesarea? This doesn't seem to make much sense. Does he really want publicity? Does he really want people to come out? And then, when Messiah shows up, how does that happen? Certainly not as the people expected. Jesus doesn't arrive with a royal army, with a royal bodyguard, no angels accompanying him, no halo on him, no divine clouds of glory. In fact, if we had been there in the crowd watching this, all we would have seen is a normal Jewish working man who has showed up in sweaty, dirty clothes, having walked some 60-plus miles from Galilee to get there without any horse or donkey or help, no disciples, no groupies, nothing, just a lone individual. And here they are at the Jordan River. This is where John is when Jesus shows up. The Orthodox Church says that at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Trinity appears publicly for the first time. The Son being baptized, the Father speaking from heaven, and the Spirit bearing witness. But how could this, this scene here, in the middle of nowhere, with this nobody from Galilee, be the appearance of the Son of God? How could this be the coming of Messiah? How could this be the fulfillment of prophecy, of Israel's hopes of restoration? It doesn't seem to make much sense. John has been baptizing people in the river. One by one they have stepped up to him. He has asked them, do you have sins to confess? Do you have things to turn away from? And one by one they've confessed, I've stolen, I've cheated my customers, I've disrespected my parents, I've killed people, I've cheated on my husband or wife, and on and on. And then finally the stranger from Galilee steps up. And again John says, what do you have to turn away from? What do you have to confess to be ready for Messiah? And Jesus is silent. He says nothing because he has nothing to confess. Here is the Son of God. And that same spirit that had filled John the Baptist from his mother's womb, the same spirit that had sent him there to preach in the wilderness, whispers in his ear, this is the one. This is he, the Messiah. Just imagine if at that point, John the Baptist had said something like, you don't look much like a king. Where's your army? 
Where's your personal guard? And what the heck happened to your clothes? That would not be very good reception, would it? We expect in a similar way when, that when God appears, when God is at work, when God's divine glory shows up, that it's going to be, well, impressive. We expect thunder and lightning, plagues, rain and hail, seas being parted, angels showing up. But instead, here at the revealing, the public unveiling of God's Messiah, we see something rural, small, something that seems insignificant. What is God doing? And here I think we need to realize another lesson of Epiphany, and that is that we really don't know God. We really don't know who He is, and we can't know Him unless He reveals Himself to us. Because when He does show up, it's often in ways that are very different from what we expect. That is why one of the most fundamental ideas in Christianity is the idea of revelation. We do not make up stuff about God. God reveals himself to us, and most importantly and gloriously, through his Son, Jesus Christ. God is faithful to his promises, but not necessarily in the way that we might expect him to be. But there's even more to this scene than that, than the surprise, the, the humility, the, the seemingly inconsequential nature of who Messiah is when he shows up. There's more to that because the Jordan River and the Jordan Wilderness, River Wilderness, had a particular significance for Israel that no other place had. In order to explain this, let me give you a modern example. Let's suppose that a group of preachers had decided to hold a national revival meeting to call upon the entire United States to repent and return to the Lord. And they were holding this national revival meeting in Concord, Massachusetts. Well, the first thing you might ask is, why on earth Concord? That's a weird place, a kind of a no place. If you want a national meeting, why not hold it in New York or Los Angeles or Atlanta or some place like that, some big city, some place with all all, all the needs that you have for large crowds, for media, communications, and so forth. What a strange place Concord would be to hold a revival meeting. And yet, every American knows that Concord has something that none of these other cities have. Significance. Because Concord is the place where the shot heard round the world was first fired. Where American colonists first stood up to their... British overlords, where they demanded freedom, independent rule. Concord, we could say in many ways, was really the beginning of the Revolutionary War, at least in terms of the battles that were being fought. We might say that Concord was where our freedom from British rule started. It symbolizes Americans' desire to be self-ruling reminds us of the bravery of those soldiers, reminds us that this far-fetched dream of independence and self-rule really could come true. Concord is not important because it was a politically important site. That's not why the battle happened there back then. 
And even today, we could say Concord is a relatively small town, a little over 16,000 people, not nationally important, not nationally known for its business or communications or education or anything really except being the birthplace of the revolution. That's what makes Concord special. Although I have been there and I do have to say they have great antique shops. In the same way, the Jordan River had great significance for Israel. The Jordan River represented traditionally the boundary of the Promised Land. It was when Israel arrived at the eastern side of the Jordan River with Joshua and all of Israel assembled as an army and crossed the river that symbolically they really felt that they had entered the land promised to their forefather Abraham. The Jordan River then in a lot of ways symbolizes the end of Israel's wilderness journey the end of the whole Exodus season and the beginning of their taking the land promised to them by God, the conquest. So when John the Baptist sets up shop at the Jordan River, this is something that nobody could miss. Just as every American schoolchild knows the significance of Concord, every Jewish child, boy and girl, would know what the Jordan River meant the beginning of their nation. The fact that John the Baptist is out here in the middle of seemingly nowhere has deep symbolism. God's people are being called back to their origins, back to their beginning, back to the place where they first entered the promised land. It's as if in baptism and repentance these people are being invited to start Israel all over again. It's no wonder that some people scoffed at John's baptism and said, I don't need that. They didn't believe they had any need to start over again. It's here in this out-of-the-way place, this wilderness with nothing there, this historic spot of Israel's origins that Messiah, the Son of God, first appears publicly. He does not appear with the pomp and glory that was expected of a messianic king. No army, no servants, no wealth. Just the clothes on his back is all he brings. Messiah has appeared, Epiphany. But will Israel recognize him? And that begs the question for us, will we recognize Christ in our midst? Can we really see what God is doing with us? God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have not abandoned planet Earth. They've not left after Jesus' ministry or death or resurrection. They're still active. But do we judge God's work by the foolish, selfish expectations of the culture around us? Are we blinded to what God is doing because we have put him in one box and he is operating in an entirely different one? Do we expect God's work to always be large, famous, persuasive, impressive to the world? Do we try to manufacture awe of God by impressing people with our buildings, our clothes, our degrees, our business acumen? Do we doubt that God can be active where there are only a few people, a poor building, no finances, if so, we are judging God and who God is in the same mistaken way that Israel did.
when its Messiah showed up. The final lesson of Epiphany then is that God's kingdom, the coming of his kingdom, does not depend on us, does not depend on what we do, does not depend on our standards of success. It depends on God. God does not need finance. God does not need the approval of the political elite. God does not need the approval of the media. God does not need anything we have to act. We see in this scene the voice of God saying to Jesus, You are my son. With you I am well pleased. Not with your reputation, with your wealth, with your buildings, with your organization. With you. With Christ himself. So let's review these lessons of Epiphany. God is faithful to his promises. God does not abandon his people. But we cannot understand properly who God is without his help, without God's initiative in revealing himself to us. And the coming of God's kingdom depends on no power other than God himself. God may come in humility in many ways, and he may invite us to serve him in humility in many ways. May God open our eyes this day, this week, this season to truly see and hear God's Messiah at work in Christ's name.